بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد. We were in the midst of discussing. We were, we were in the midst of discussing the various different uh, Sufis of the past. We started with we, we started with uh, Junaid. Abul Qasim Junaid al-Baghdadi We move on to a few others I'm just going <coughs> to keep it brief Because there's so many things that are mentioned about them And uh, we'll move on to Sayyidi Ahmed he, As he says Sayyidi Ahmed ibn al-Rifai Imam Munawi says in his Al-Kawakib al-Durriya Imam Munawi is a very famous scholar He um, Al-Kawakib al-Durriya fi manaqib al-Sufi Basically he's got a book that deals with all of the uh, th- that that basically deals with uh, numerous uh, Sufis, and he's discussing their biographies in there. So he says that this Sayyidi Ahmad ibn Rifai has got some very interesting uh, incidents related about him. But he is Ahmad ibn Ali ibn Ahmad ibn Yahya ibn Hazim ibn Rifai, Al-Zahid al-Kabir, the major ascetic, and Ahad al-Awliya al-Mashahir. One of the most, one of the one of the most famous awliya, one of the famous awliya of Allah, Abu Abbas al Rifai al Maghribi. So he's Moroccan, he's Maghribi. His father came from Iraq. It looks like many people travel from Iraq and they went to different parts of the world. So, for example, Muinuddin Chishti was very famously well known in the subcontinent. He also came from. Though he's actually from somewhere else, he's from Chisht, which is basically, I think, in Afghanistan or in Khorasan. But he also came through Baghdad. It looks like Baghdad is where people would go to be, mashallah, uh, endowed with some of these uh, blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because Baghdad has a lot of awliya that are buried there. Baghdad has a lot of awliya that are buried there. And uh, it's one city that I haven't visited yet, but... Um, Sham has many, Egypt has many, but Baghdad is supposed to have a lot. It's got Abu Qasim al Junaid al Baghdadi, it's got Ahmad ibn Hanbal, it's got Imam Abu Hanifa, it's got Maruf al Karhi, it's got so many of the great people there. So um, he, he, was, he came from Baghdad and then he came to Maghrib and he, that's where he stayed in a, pl- in a place called Ardul Bata'i. That's he, his father had come to that area. So his father had come from Baghdad. So he was born in that area and that's where he was born in about 500 Hijri. So around when Imam Ghazali, just towards the end of Ghazali's life, that's when he is around there. But remember by that time Ghazali, Imam Ghazali had probably left Baghdad and he had retired to Tus. Eventually towards the end of his life in 505 when he died, he had retired to Tus, which is quite far from Baghdad because that's in Iran today, close to Mashhad. So he left Baghdad a while back. But Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani is probably in Baghdad by this time, but he's probably not that old yet. So this is when, anyway, this is when he is born. Uh, this uh, Sayyidi Ahmad al-Rifai. So that's where he gets brought up. Um, not in Baghdad, but uh, in, um, uh, in Ardul Bata'i. And he studied, he became a jurist on the madhab of Imam Shafi'i. So he's a Shafi apparently. And then he started focusing on Tasawuf. And he really 
you see many people are focused on tasawuf but there's very few uh, there's probably very few which we're talking about who make the extra effort that's required to really excel and to really get through the various stages we uh, earlier covered the various stages of the soul the seven different degrees of the soul if you remember so there's few that would be able to really work hard to make sure that they can raise their level to that and obviously these are the people who did it that's why they become very famous and very well known because others have been able to benefit from them that's that's what you really understand from here so he really put in a lot of effort to such a degree that he really uh, got a very in-depth understanding of the sciences related to spirituality what they call the ulumul qawm and he he used to give discourses it seems and he was able to really open up the various different issues that were confusing or that were difficult to understand he was able to do that now if you look in the subcontinent one of the people who are mashallah who've been blessed with this kind of work in the recent times because remember this is fifth sixth century we're talking about but in the more recent times Maulana Ashraf Ali Tanwi Hakim Ummah he's been known for that and there's some several of his books they're just amazing and because what he managed to do is he managed to again because as i've mentioned before over time within the orders there's various different things that creep in people do different things because there's no cell, uh, central regulatory body of any of the orders so anybody can literally claim what they want and people are looking for medicine of the heart people are looking for any medicine so health so medicine of the heart they will go to anybody that seems attractive so if we want more people here we can probably start a few you know interesting things and i'm sure we'd get a lot of people right so there's nobody to regulate it so what molna sharitan we did is that he managed to really sift out and to try to focus on the the main important ideas i've seen it in different places i went to one place where i i was in ramadan i was recommended to go to one place for tarawih to a particular masjid that was um, organized by a certain order of sufis which are alhamdulillah they they decent people uh, but what i noticed is that we got there at least half an hour before Mag- uh, half an hour before isha half an hour before isha prayer and mashallah they were all engaged in dhikr from that time so in this loud dhikr that uh, you know somebody would tell them what to read and then everybody would read that for a good half an hour 40 minutes from before isha then the ta- then the isha then after isha there's some adhkar again that they would all read you know for quite a while then they start tarawi now the tarawi is literally finished in about half an hour to 40 minutes by this is ramadan they're not reading the full quran they're just reading from the last surahs so they finish the tarawi off very quickly and this is not like the last day of ramadan where they finish their quran already no this is the way they do it they make it very short then tarawi finished uh witr etc tarawi finished and then they started the adhkar again right they started the adhkar again for i don't know how long it was then we had we had to leave now it's wonderful sitting there with all the adhkar alhamdulillah but my only thing was that ramadan is for tarawi it's a special time and it's for the quran adhkar are wonderful 
But Taraweeh is very important in Ramadan. It's a special worship for Ramadan. Quran, reading the whole Quran, they could easily do it. These people are sitting there. They're dedicated people. The only difference is that they would have had to stand up for a bit longer. That's the only difference. They just would have had to stand up a bit longer, but they would have read Quran. Quran, Shahru Ramadan, the Unzila Fihil Quran, Ramadan is the month of the Quran. So why are they neglecting Quran? Right? That's the way it seemed. Now, Allah, I didn't ask them, and you know, I didn't ask them the questions and everything. So the whole point is that we just sat there, we thought we could have had a really nice taraweeh, you know, cut out some of the adhkar. And that just shows that it seems like it's a tradition that's come down. Someone did it maybe for whatever reason. And there's nobody to kind of rectify and say, look, let's get back to basics. Let's back to the essentials. What is the sunnah in Ramadan? The sunnah is salatul taraweeh. They did 20 rakats, by the way, as well. It wasn't eight rakats. They did 20 rakats, as far as I can remember. They did 20 rakats, but it was just very short. Uh, you know, the, the last 10, 15, 20 surahs, that's it. Right? Now, I went to another masjid the next day, and there they had a shorter taraweeh as well. But they didn't have any adhkar. And then the sheikh there, he explained that. He says, look, people don't have the time or whatever. So I can understand that. He just cut everything out. So made it as short as possible. They did 20 rakats, but very, very short. No, you know, not full Quran reading, just different parts of the Quran they would read and just, just finish it off. A bit of adhkar and then finish. Maybe a small talk and finish. Now that I can understand to a certain degree. Because it's not far to read the entire Quran. Right? But when you're going to spend an hour at least, uh, you know, if you include before and after taraweeh at least, in doing adhkar, then why wouldn't you just do half an hour extra and read the whole Quran in your taraweeh? Right? The Quran is the best of adhkar. I mean, subhanallah, the Quran is some of the best of adhkar. Um, and it's the month of Ramadan. So th these are just some examples. We're not even talking about exotic stuff. We're not even talking about degenerated bid'at and innovations that, are, that, that have crept into many orders. We're talking about, you know, people just doing adhkar. They're not doing anything crazy, but priorities. Right? What is the Quran? So no, what is the main thing that we should be discussing? Or what is the main thing we should be doing? So that, that's what needs to happen every once in a while. So it looks like um, this Sayyidi Ahmad ibn Rifai, at least the one thing that is mentioned about him is that he managed to open up uh, a lot of the profoundness of this science and explain it to people. That's why it seems like that's why he's become very well known. But then there's some other uh, things that are related about this particular tariqah which I'll come to. Numerous people used to come to his gatherings because, mashallah, he had that kind of a pull and they, they loved him, they had a lot of respect for him. That's why Ibn Khallikan, Ibn Khallikan is one of our famous historians. Ibn Khallikan, I mean, you go to his books. So this is the way he describes the Rifa'iyah. So Ibn Khallikan is later and he describes Sheikh Ahmad al-Rifa'i and his group. He says, وَهُمْ أَطَّائِفَةُ الْرِفَاعِيَّةِ They are the Rifa'iyah order. They're the group of Rifa'iyah. وَيُقَارُ لَهُمَ الْأَحْمَدِيَّةِ وَالْبَطَائِحِيَّةِ And they, they've also got two other names, which is Ahmadiyyah, because Shaykh Ahmad Rifa'i. Right? And Bata'ihiyya, which basically because of the place they were. It's called Bata'i. That's why it's called Bata'ihiyya. Now you can understand where these names come from now. 
right? These are not God sent names as, as like, you know, there's going to be this many orders or whatever the case is. Generally in the Indian subcontinent, they talk about only four orders because that's what were, those four orders were the most popular ones in the subcontinent. But there's many, many orders of, of the Sawuf. Right? You know, different people can start one, just depends on whether it becomes popular and people accept it or not and, and somebody condemns it or not. But the proof is going to be in the pudding in the sense of what they teach. And is it based on Quran Sunnah as Junaid al-Baghdadi said? Because anything beyond Quran Sunnah is going to be a problem. So he says that this is the, this, these are the other names. Walahum ahwalun ajiba. It looks like Imam Sawi, who's writing this biography, he didn't want to mention this directly from himself, but he's, and this is something I've heard of when I was in Syria as well, that people had mentioned, I never, I never witnessed any of this myself, but I'm sure it's on YouTube, right? I'm not telling you to go there to check this out. But this particular group, they're known to do some very strange things. These rifa'iyah, they put themselves into doing some very strange things. So that's why he says, وَلَهُمْ أَحْوَالَ عَجِيبَ مِنْ أَكْلِ الْحَيَّاتِ حَيَّةً They're eating snakes alive. I'm not sure where that even came from, but this is now attributed to the Rifa'iyah. When you go to Syria or Egypt, for example, uh, the Rifa'iyah, they do all of these weird things. They do all of these really strange things. I've not been able to go and understand why they do it, what's the justification, how they got to that level, right, and where it's got to. But I've heard about this from before. So he says they eat snakes alive. They're basically going into fire, into pits, into fire pits, basically. Um, one of them would actually sleep on the side of a of a of one of those you know ovens that you have in the ground that they bake the tandoori bread in, right? While on the other side somebody's baking the bread. It's hot. You'd be sweating. This guy's sleeping there, but that's nothing. That's nothing. Um, there are so many. There are so many other things with swords, right? Piercing themselves. Um, Another one is that they would, they would have a fire, all right? They would have a fire and then they would basically start doing some kind of vicar around it or within it until the fire becomes extinguished by their walking over it. So basically they're walking on embers, but walking on fire. Now all of these things are possible by the way. Muslims can do them and non-Muslims can do them as well. If you go to countries in the world like India and other places where the Hindu jogis as you call them, right? the Hindu sadhus, they do some really crazy things as well. That's got nothing to do with religion. Meaning to do these things have nothing to do with religion because it's not only through religion you can do these things. It's, a, it's an ability within the human being that they can prepare themselves to do such a thing. So whether you're Muslim or you're something else, right, you could train for it. It's just training. Of a certain way of doing it. And that the proof is that there's Muslims and non-Muslims who do these things. And I don't know if there's any other order, Sufi order that does this. Now how this crept in, Allah knows best. It doesn't say that this comes from his time. Maybe some people from later on who followed him have started doing this. But it's very restricted to that group. You don't really hear about other groups doing it as much. That's as far as I know anyway. So yeah, they would dance around in there, right? Maybe it was a type of a hadara they were doing or whatever, right? They would dance around, probably as some kind of ecstatic spiritual kind of dance or whatever it was, until it would, it would go off, until the flames would go off. 
No. Right? But but you can understand that there will be people who will be attracted to this, this kind of stuff. It sounds amazing. It sounds different. It's not doesn't give me any satisfaction. It doesn't excite me. But there may be other people who are excited by this kind of stuff. It doesn't make it right or wrong. Do you understand? What's right or wrong is whether it's Quran Sunnah. And we're supposed to be away from fire. Right? We shouldn't be touching fire. Abbas anhu, I mean one of the Sahaba he he was in a battle and he he basically punished one of the captives by fire and that that was uh, not liked by the other sahaba so fire is something we want to run away from and sayyid ahmad rifai himself had some amazing karamat that have been related now when we've not been there to see this but this is what's been related and not just related in one place, they've been related across the board. Many karamat about him. I'm just going to mention a few of them because there's no doubt that he definitely had a great influence and he definitely was a great person. There was, there's no doubt about that. Now, some of the things that I mentioned about him, I can't even repeat here, right? Because I don't want to explain them, right? It's just going to take too long to explain that and it's just a, it's just a major, major gamble for no reason, right? And you're not going to benefit by knowing it either because you're not going to do that either, right? And neither do I want to do that. But there's several wonderful things about him. One of his karamat is that there were two men, there were two guys within his area, two people, who loved each other purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One of them, I think his name was Ma'ali, the other one is Abdul Mun'im. Anyway, once they went out to the desert and one of them, I mean, remember these people are Sufis, they're into it, they're talking about Allah all the time, they're remembering Allah all the time, they're doing dhikr all the time. Okay? So, as they're going through a desert, they, their friendship, their mutual friendship between them is purely based on love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No other selfish reason that you're going to help me or you're going to do this or you're going to do that. It's purely uh, brotherhood for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, one of them desires that he should receive some kind of certification, some kind of certification from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be freed from hellfire. Like, I want to know in this world that I've been freed from the hellfire, I want a certificate. Right? So his idea was that a certificate should descend from the heavens. Yanzilu min sama Suddenly, there's a, a white piece of paper that flutters down and they pick it up. There's nothing written on it. They can't see anything written on it. So half the dua is accepted. You've got a certificate, but it doesn't say anything on it. Does it mean like you must write on it or what? So they take that certificate. They take that piece of paper. I wonder what it was made of. They take that piece of paper and they come to the sheikh. They don't tell him anything about it. They don't tell him about this experience at all. They've just come back now, right? And they're sitting with him. He looks at them and he falls down into prostration. Then he says, Alhamdulillahi arani itqa ashabi min al-nari fi dunya qabla al-akhirah. All praises to Allah that he has demonstrated for me, shown me the freedom of my companions from the hellfire in this dunya before the akhirah. How Allah has demonstrated this for me. Remember, they haven't told him this incident. So, then eventually, they pulled out, the, he says, look, this is the white piece of paper that 
that was given to us because they figured out that he knows something about it. So then he says, why is it white? So then they're asking, why is it white? He says, oh my sons, yadul kudra la taktubu sawda. The, the, the hand of the kudra, the hand of the divine power, where the source of this right, the source of this letter, it doesn't use blacking to write. It's not going to use black because blackness is against whiteness. Whiteness is good, right? In the sense of uh, purity that they're talking about. That it doesn't write in black ink. وَهَذِهِ مَكْتُوبَةٌ مِنْ نُورِ This is written with light. You can't see it. You need a special filter to see it. Invisible ink, basically. I mean, we understand this today. So it's some kind of invisible ink that's written with nur. Now, the most amazing thing, and this is mentioned in several places, by the way, this story, right? Numerous places, numerous people have mentioned this story. And I was amazed when I first heard it. Some of you may have heard it already. When he performed Hajj, when he went for Hajj, he stood in front of the Hujra, the, the, the room of the Prophet ﷺ, the Qabr of the Prophet ﷺ. Don't try this today, by the way. They'll kill you. Right? They will throw you out. Then they'll call you shirk. I don't know what they'll do to you. But this is what he said. He stood there and he read the following poem. He says, فِي حَالَةِ الْبُعْدِ فِي حَالَةِ الْبُعْدِ رُوحِي كُنْتُ أُرْسِلُهَا تُقَبِّلُ الْأَرْضَ عَنِّي وَهِيَ نَائِبَتِي وَهَذِهِ نَوْبَةُ الْأَشْبَاحِ قَدْ حَضَرَتْ وَقَدْ حَضَرْتُ فَمْدُدْ يَمِينَكَ كَيْ تَحْضَى بِهَا شَفَتِي He says, when I was distant, when I was away, I used to send my spirit so that it could kiss the earth on behalf of me. It was my, it was, it was basically my ambassador. It would kiss the earth in front of you, right? This earth of your grave, it would kiss it on my behalf. Now that could be metaphorical. You could say that. I mean, that's not a problem. That's just an expression, right? It doesn't, I mean, Wallahu alam, if he's talking about reality, maybe he is, right? Um, but he says now, now it's the turn of the body to come. It's the turn of my form to be present. I've come with my spirit so many times, but now my form has come. It has become, it has, it has made itself present in front of you. So extend your hand, extend your blessed hand, so that my lips can basically grace it. My, my lips can grace your hand. And amazingly, فَخَرَجَتِ الْيَدُ الشَّرِيفَ مِنَ الْقَبْرِ this is what's reported by the people who are there, apparently, that the blessed hand came out of the grave. Now how? Wallahu a'lam, right? It came out of the grave until he kissed it. You would expect that there's always going to be people around that area, right? And it says that people were watching this. Again, because it didn't happen to me, it didn't happen to you, it didn't happen to anybody we know, we're probably going to deny it, in your mind at least, right? But it's min al mumkinat. I mean, none of these things are on the absolute impossible realities. But if tomorrow somebody's going to say that's what happened to them, I'm going to be I'm going to be skeptical about it generally because it doesn't happen every day, right? But there is a friend of mine who I know whose wife's a convert, and while her hand did not come out, she felt that she had heard wa alaykum assalam coming from the grave. Because that whole night she was crying, and then the next day when I met the family. My, my friend said that my wife's been crying all night. 
And I asked her why you've been crying And she said last night when we went to do uh, salam I heard wa alaykum salam Now maybe she heard it from around her somewhere Maybe there was somebody else who said it Right? Maybe she thought she heard it But she heard it She heard something Whatever she heard it made her feel good But that doesn't mean anything to anybody else does it? For her it's something that's good If it happens to you alhamdulillah Just make sure that Mahdi, you know, they don't declare you Mahdi, that's all. Right? Because you understand, you can't, de- you can't deny these things, but at the same time, you don't have to accept them for yourself. If it didn't happen to you, but I can say that the Prophet, there's nothing wrong with believing that he could say, Wa alaikum salam to you. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. That, I don't think any uh, reliable scholar would, would, would refuse that. Because we know that prophets according to everybody, are alive in their grave. The only difference is how much alive. Majority believe that they have a life where they pray even. Even Ibn al-Qayyim mentions that they pray in their grave. And the hadith are very clear that, uh, and it's from the Quran that the shuhadas, uh, the shuhada, which means the martyrs, their body doesn't get eaten. And we've seen this over and over again. People have actually seen martyrs after years and years and years. In fact, there's one graveyard that I know, right, which is in London, and the the person who's in charge of that graveyard, who I trust, right, who I really trust, he told me that when they were digging up a grave, when they were digging for a grave, they opened up a grave of somebody who had died maybe 10, 15 years ago, from the local community. And he said that there was a woman and she was completely whole. There was no decomposition. He won't tell me who it is. He just won't tell me who it is because that's his, you know, he thinks it's a secret that he must hold. Because you don't go around digging up graves, right? But he did it and he saw that himself. That she must be somebody very special from the local community. So these are, these are not impossibilities. But tomorrow somebody, like, you know, comes along, even if I claim that, I mean... You're going to take it according to what you think of a person. Like if he's claiming this kind of stuff all the time. Gonna be... Now, if the person is a very decent person, know there's something about them. It's not an impossible. It's not min al-mustahilat, uh, as they would say in Arabic. It's not from the impossibilities. Right? It's not from the impossibilities. I mean, today, to, uh, with the whole visual aspect of augmented reality, virtual reality, it doesn't even sound far-fetched. Not to say somebody's there, Samsung, or somebody's there, you know, creating that image for you, and you're looking at your phone and Pokemon or something. Not like that. But the fact that it can happen, where you can be in a virtual system, right, put on some goggles and you're like in another world, and why can you not imagine that the Prophet's hand? Whether that is the Prophet's hand or not is another question. Because, you know, people have discussed this idea of seeing the Prophet in an awakeful state, because in your dream you can see anything anyway. So if you see the Prophet, you've seen him. But can you see the Prophet in a wakeful state? As many people have claimed it. Right? But then the question is that what do they really see? Do they actually see the Prophet in flesh and blood come there? Is it a vision of him? Is it a reflection of him? Is it a projection of him? We've got many options to think about today. Whatever that is, right? Whatever that is, is probably special unless somebody did it. Like somebody besides Allah, you know, somebody just put a projection out there and made you see that, hey, I am the Prophet. Somebody's messing you around. There was actually a book that was written, I read a long time ago. How, I'm not sure which, I'm not sure which one it was of the world, which, 
agency. They got this guy who is a bit, a bit soft-headed, a bit, his mind, you know, wasn't all there. Got him to come for Umrah or Hajj. I'm not sure where he came from. I can't remember. It's been a long time. <clears throat> and this was the, this book was written like 40, 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. So there was none of this technology in those days. So they were talking about using a satellite something to create a light for him and then a, for him to hear a sound that you are Mahdi. And then for him to try to do that. And this, this whole story is giving an idea basically. But to be honest, I mean now 25, 30 years later, the technology exists to do that. So be careful when you hear noises or hear voices. Right? You have to be very careful. It depends what it's telling you to do. <clears throat> so anyway, the hand did come out. People watched it and they saw it. And there's another scholar of the subcontinent with Mona Hussein Ahmed Madani. It's related about him. That he was teaching, he used to teach hadith by the grave of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in the days when you, when you, when you could do that, right? Um, and there was a dis, uh, there was question, somebody started asking questions about whether the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is alive in his grave or is dead. Because there is a minority that believe that the Prophets are dead <clears throat> or in some kind of death. Uh, they are, they've definitely departed this world. They're, a worldly death has come upon them. There's a question about what kind of life they have. How much is the life that they have? So these people feel that they don't have much life. They don't have much sense in that sense. So he was trying to respond and say, no, they are alive. They are alive and so on. And the guy kept persisting, you know, when, a, when you get that stubborn, no, it can't be. So then he looked towards the grave. It's related. He looked towards the grave and he says, look, he's alive. And they saw that he was, they could see him. It was like almost like it, something had been uncovered. Right? They move there, you move your sight away, you look again, it's gone. It's a fraction of a second that the veils have been lifted. Now that's happened. Right? My grandfather, when he went for Hajj the first time, the first time he, when he first, go to, uh, first went to Arabia, and to, into the Haram, and he looked at the Kaaba, and the first time he looks at the Kaaba, he turns around to my dad, and he said, I thought the Kaaba have a, has a cloth on it. He saw it without a cloth. And then... You know, he turned around, he looked back, and there was a cloth on there. And everyone said, no, there is a cloth. He got the vision, but they didn't. Why? Allah knows best. What are you supposed to do with that? Nothing. Alhamdulillah, maybe Allah wanted to show me something. Don't get too infatuated about it. For example, there's somebody who contacted me recently, that she had an ear problem. And because of that, they put something in there for the surgery or whatever. And then she suddenly started hearing adhan. She started hearing Adhan. Now, she's got this long story, about a uh, long description about um, that it's not, you know, when th there's a problem that a lot of people have, that when they suddenly feel <coughs> that they're, you may have experienced this, you suddenly feel like your phone is in your pocket and it's vibrating. And you look and your phone isn't even there. I don't know, have you experienced that? Now, that's the human body, there's explanations for that, right? But then there's what they call tinnitus, where there's people who have a ringing in their ear all the time. It just really bothers them. So she's trying to say, look, it can't be this, it can't be that, but it's definitely the adhan. But after they took out the gomits or whatever it was, then it's a very far sound now, it's not as close. And she's telling me, what do you think that sound is? 
I don't know what that sound is. I don't know what that sound is, but I can tell you how to react to it. Right? Don't get too excited. Say, Alhamdulillah, it's Adhan and you're not hearing Michael Jackson or Madonna in your ears. Alhamdulillah. Right? You're hearing. But to say that, oh, this is like the sound has been maintained there from the first Adhan in my ear and all the rest of it, Allah knows best. The fact all you can say is interact with it in the way that Alhamdulillah, it's a good thing. Thank Allah. And basically reflect on your life to become closer to Allah. And this is what Allah wants. So instead of trying to find the reality of these things, which may be very difficult to discern because there could be so many reasons it could come about. The fact that it's there, just take it in a positive sense and move on. But don't think you're some wali of Allah and that's it, that you don't have to pray anymore, for example. The only thing I can tell you to do is to encourage you to do more. This hopefully gives an understanding of various different experiences that we have in life. Everybody has a different experience. It's not impossible because there are a lot of other realities out there that we cannot even see. Waves and dimensions that we can't even see. We can't even hear. And sometimes Allah just opens up those things to us, unveils some of those things to us. Whether that be the sound, right? A certain sound stream or whether that be something we can see. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. The main thing is how we react to it. These things should not distract us. That's the main thing. We have our job cut out for us. Right? We have our job cut out for us, which is that we need to pray and we need to fulfill the rights of others. And that's what our job is. Right? And to be good with akhlaq to people. Just because if I had some experience like that doesn't mean I become any better than anybody else. It could be a deception from the shaitan. We never know. That's the main thing. Let's carry on with our work. Now, this has happened to so many people. He says that he was informed of the time he was going to die. And it was exactly like that. Right? He must have told people, this is what I've been told. And then that's when he died. And this has happened to so many people. People I know as well. So it's that this is not even something that you need to be skeptical about. All right? To be honest, when you know about these things, when you've been told about these things, you'll only know if they're real or not if you actually die on that day afterwards. Because there's a lot of people who said, I've been told I'm going to die here, or this is going to happen, it didn't happen. But then if it did happen, then you can say, okay, it did happen. Right? So you can only know in the future. But there are some people, you know, some awliya who are very confident about these things because the angel will tell them. And that's fine. Just because Allah says in the Quran that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, nobody knows that information for everybody. But if Allah wants to open it up for one person, that's fine. So there can be exceptions to this in a partial sense. That's, that, that's the understanding of this verse. Anyway, on another occasion, see, I'm bringing all of these stories because I want to analyze them and I want to tell us how to understand them. So that neither do we get so obsessed by them that you know we're, we then get um, misled or we don't become such deniers that we're denying a reality. So that's the reason why I'm bringing this up because I think this is a very important lesson. How do you deal with these things? You don't have to accept it, but you can't deny it either. Just because you didn't have the experience, just because I didn't have the experience, doesn't mean that it can't happen. Right? It could happen, but I don't have to accept it. If you've been told in your dream by the Prophet ﷺ that I need to pay you, or I need to do this, well, I'm not going to listen to that if I don't feel like it. If I really trust you, and I think, mashallah, then maybe I'll, I'll do that, but I don't have to. Your vision is not proof for me. That's what everybody says. But if, you know, if you've seen a vision, well, that's up to you. And there have been people you know, who've seen visions about the Prophet telling them to do things. 
and subhanallah you know uh, for them it's worked out very well that you will go to this place you will go here you will have this and that's exactly what's happened afterwards so anyway on another occasion he wanted to buy an orchard from someone the person said he's not going to sell it to him unless he says unless you give me a palace in paradise for it now they knew he's a really righteous wali of Allah right so he's saying I'm not going to sell it to you unless you give me a palace in paradise for it what a deal man so he began to shake and his color changed like what are you asking for then he said okay I've purchased it for you for that palace. Now this person wasn't going to let go. He said, I want you to write me a deed. Land, land registry. Right? So he wrote, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Hadha ma ibta'a Ismail min al abd Ahmad al Rifa'i dominan ala karamillahi lahu. Kasran fil Jannah. hudud al hudud Adan, al in the name of Allah most gracious, most merciful, this is the sale of Ismail. That was the person's name. Ismail from the servant of Allah, Ahmad al-Rifai, who is taking, who is guaranteeing based on Allah's benevolence upon him, right, based on Allah's kindness and benevolence upon him, a palace in paradise, one side of which, or one edge of that one edge of that palace, right? One edge of the grounds of that palace is Jannatu Adan, links to Jannatu Adan. Another edge of it to Jannatul Ma'wa, a third one to Jannatul Khuld, and the fourth one to Jannatul Firdaus, right? And that includes everything inside the Hoors, the, 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 the servants, the what do you call it? Um, all of the seating, right? All the beautiful stuff, the drinks. The, the, the lakes, the trees, everything, and all of that is being sold for this orchard of, your, of his in this dunya. And Allah is witness to this, and he is the guarantor. Okay, it's done. Now, you can work it out in the hereafter, I guess, right, if that happened or not. However, when this Ismail, he died, when he died, he made, they made sure that they took this certificate, this deed, and they buried, him with the, they buried the deed with him. Next day, next morning, when they woke up and they looked at his grave, it was written on his grave. Now, how it was written, Wallahu alam, somehow it was written. We have found what our Lord has promised us to be true. Right? As though that's a message from inside. So, Wallahu alam, it doesn't happen every day, these things. And if they happen, well, there was no YouTube in those days to, to, hey, let's take a picture of this, you know, or something like that. Let's record this. 
Wallahu alam. But it can't, it, you know, while it sounds very far fetched, but we can't deny it. Mata radiallahu anhu bi baladihi sanata thamani wa tis'ina wa khamsimi'a. He died in his hometown in 598 Hijri. 598 Hijri. He didn't leave any children behind. Walam yu'akib. He didn't leave any children behind. And uh, his position of Shaykh, it went to uh, his nephew. So he is uh, his. He had he had siblings from whom he had children, and that's where he went. He didn't leave anything. Uh, the next person we're going to discuss will be Sayyidi Abdul Qadir Al Jilani, rahimahullah. We'll, we, inshallah, we'll discuss that next time. And there's a lot more known about him. He's a lot more mainstream. He's got a much greater following, and they don't have the same kind of strange uh, things linked to them uh, as some of the Rifa'is do. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us closeness to him. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam tabarakta ya jalali wa ikram. Allahumma ya hayyu ya qayyum bi rahmatika nastaghith ya dhal jalali wa ikram. Ya arhamar rahimim, ya hannanu ya mannan, ya hayyu ya qayyum. Oh Allah, we ask you for your blessing and your mercy. Oh Allah, send your abundant blessings on our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. O oh Allah, we ask you for complete forgiveness. O oh Allah, we ask you for complete purity. O oh Allah, we ask you for complete cleansing of our hearts. O oh Allah, we ask that you make our hearts those which are filled and brimming with your love. And O oh Allah, we ask that you fill our hearts with the love of your obedience and the hatred of your disobedience. O oh Allah, this would make so matters so much easier for us. O oh Allah, we ask that you bless us in the remaining part of our life even more than the blessings that you have the innumerable blessings that you've already granted us in our previous part of our life O oh Allah we ask that you make the rest of our life better than our previous part of our life but make the best part of our life the last part of our life O oh Allah we ask that you bless us in the hereafter O oh Allah we need more blessings in the hereafter than we need in this world O oh Allah join us to you O oh Allah keep us close to you O oh Allah, keep us close to you. O oh Allah, grant us surroundings. O oh Allah, grant us people around us, whether at work or in our family, that are conducive for your worship. O oh Allah, conducive for your worship. O oh Allah, remove bad friends from us. O oh Allah, remove bad com company from us. Grant us good company around us and keep us surrounded by good company. There are many, many challenges out there. O oh Allah, we ask that you allow us to surmount these challenges and grant us afia oh allah grant us well-being grant us safety grant us security especially for us our children and our progeny until the day of judgment oh allah we've been told that due to a righteous person they it, it benefits many of their many of their descendants oh allah make us of the righteous people oh allah make us of the righteous ones make us of the awliya O oh Allah, we speak about these awliya, we speak about the great people. O oh Allah, let us be inspired to become like them. O oh Allah, make it easy and facilitate this for us. O oh Allah, grant, us, grant for us a removal of our physical and spiritual ailments. O oh Allah, bring us closer to you. And O oh Allah, grant us the kalima la ilaha illallah on our deathbed. O oh Allah, allow us to see the truth as the truth and allow us to follow it and see the wrong as the wrong and allow us to abstain from it. O oh Allah, allow us to improve our character. Allow us never to harm others. O oh Allah, never to insult others and never for 
bad words to come from our tongues and for bad things to come from ourselves. O oh Allah, all the bounties that you have given us, bless us in them, whether that be our wealth, our health, our security. O oh Allah, our Iman above all, our Iman above all. O oh Allah, make us of those who remember you abundantly, who remember you abundantly, who thank you abundantly. O oh Allah, do not make us of those who forget you and who forget everything has come from you. O oh Allah, we ask that you bless our parents and our teachers and our students and our relatives and all those who expect us to make dua for them, those who have requested us to make dua for them, those who we should be making dua for, those who have showed us kindness and generosity and we should be making dua for. O oh Allah, make us of those who fulfill the rights of others. O oh Allah, remove selfishness from our heart and grant us selflessness. O oh Allah, accept us all for the service of your deen. Accept us in some way that we can assist and we can be engaged in the good deeds of this world. O mm. oh Allah, make us the means of goodness in the world. Make us the means of a lot of khair and barakah in this world and protect us from being any kind of opener or keys to the evil that is found in this world. O oh Allah, we ask that you send abundant blessings on our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and that you grant us his company in the hereafter. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salamun alimu wa alhamdulillah.